The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. And how are you doing? Well, um, I was caught downtown with a series of meetings, but uh, and I apologize for the late start. Oh, see, here's the thing is you got caught downtown because you were the only one in your car. Whereas when we made the big cross-Ontario trip, we took advantage of the HOV lanes. Wait, wait a second. What cross-Ontario trip? Well, okay. Not, maybe not cross-Ontario. We went Toronto to Ottawa with that brand new car I was telling you we were going to buy. What did you end up getting? We ended up getting the Nissan Murano. Ah, good. The, the high-end model. And I have to tell you, in the 11 years since we bought our last car, the evolution of what's behind the dashboard is phenomenal. <laughs> I felt like I was flying a space cruiser. Didn't I tell you? I'm going to turn you into a car guy yet. The thing's got six cylinders. I'm accustomed to a Honda Civic with four. Mm-hmm. And the pickup on this thing, the combination of the two additional cylinders and the fact that you're probably three feet higher up off the ground, you go from zero to 120 kilometers an hour like that. Uh-huh. You're like, oh, my God, this thing's a speed demon. Okay, it's still a Nissan Murano, it but is. it's much better. It's a step up for you. I'm very proud of you for taking that leap. Nice job. It's got the 360-degree all-around camera because there are four cameras on the thing that gives you a top-down view. When we're parking the car now, it feels like we're playing a video game. <laughs> sure it does. Now, there's one downside to all this, and don't get me wrong. I really like all the technology that's coming in cars, but what it can do, what it, see, we're one step away from not being able to drive at all. Yes. Because we have all these electronic doodads that take away uh, the responsibility for doing certain things, like looking over your shoulder when you're backing up and so on. Yeah, but guys like you said the same thing when we brought in the automatic transmission. I don't like the automatic transmission. I want to feel like I'm driving the car. Fine, drive your car. I don't think that's the voice I used. Yes, exactly. I'm pretty sure it's not the voice I used. But, <laughs> I, again, I, I really appreciate all the technology. Don't get me wrong, I really like it. But uh, in the hands of the wrong doofus, it can get really, really bad quickly. Yeah, I've, I've seen a few doofuses on the 401. Doofy. Yes, the plural of doofuses. <laughs> yes. Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. So what are aliens listening to today? If they're 50 light years away, chances are they're rocking out to the Rolling Stones. Any further back, we're talking grandpa music. Why mosquitoes eat you alive, but not your spouse. Here comes the science and Alan's wife with a plate of cheese. The cheese figures into it, trust us. A new documentary runs down the top 10 songs to have sex to, and we'll tell you why moils worldwide are unlikely to attend a One Direction concert. Opinions are like the Blackberry Bold. You find them everywhere, but nobody's impressed with them. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. What is the explanation? Who knows? Alien music. This is fascinating. I like this. Despite the appearance of Matthew McConaughey, I really like the movie Contact. Carl Sagan novel about first contact with an alien race. Yep. Uh, Jodie Foster is a radio astronomer, and she's listening, last-ditch effort, listening in the SETI project, listening for something 
from out there. And one day, this weird prime number sequence is captured coming from the vicinity of Vega. And they're able to record it and then decrypt it, or at least uh, translate it into something. And it's a huge reveal. I'm going to spoil it if you haven't seen the film. Too bad, the movie's been out for 15 years. Um, it turns out that the signal being beamed from somewhere in the vicinity of Vega is a mirror transmission of the 1936 uh, Berlin Olympics with Adolf Hitler giving the opening address, which is one of the very first television, high-powered television broadcasts. So they simply picked it up, and the aliens sent it back to us. And uh, that gives you an idea of how far Vega was, because television signals leave the planet in all directions and travel at the speed of light. So it took from 1936 until, I guess, let's say 1999 uh, for it to go there and back. So this is where we bring in Lightyear.fm. What it is, is it since it gives you an approximation from when we started sending electromagnetic broadcast waves out into space in about 1906-ish, mm -hmm. it tells us how far those waves have reached into the universe, what the bubble of radio and television transmissions are around planet Earth. And you play with this sort of, it's an HTML thing, uh, HTML5 thing, and what you do is you play with it and you can go out as far as this bubble has gone and see what aliens in that vicinity of the universe uh, would be listening to. If you were 105 light years away from the planet Earth, you would hear our first terrestrial broadcast of 1910. Ada Jones and the American Quartet, call me up some rainy afternoon. The neat thing is, is that you're about 50 light years away before you get into something that even vaguely resembles rock and roll as we know it today. The Rolling Stones. That's true. as many as 512 stars of spectral type G. So what you're saying is these are potential planets that may be picking up our radio signals. That's right. Uh, this is, these, are, these, sun, these stars are the size of our sun, so that they would be listening to that very first broadcast that you played. Columbia, Columbia, this is Houston, AOS, over. Roger, the EVA is progressing beautifully. Interesting that this comes at the same time, and on the anniversary of the moon landing, that we learn that Professor Stephen Hawking is backing a venture to listen for aliens. They've allocated 100 million U.S. dollars, about 64 million British pounds, through the Breakthrough Initiatives Group at the Royal Society of London for a 10-year program to scan the skies looking for intelligent signs of life beyond Earth. They plan to cover 10 times more of the sky than the SETI program Program, five times more the radio spectrum and do it 100 times faster. The city has been really hit and miss. They're, they're, they're focusing on this one particular area of the radio spectrum, which has to do with the hydrogen atom. And uh, they've only been able to do tiny little bits of the sky at the same time. Well, do you remember the SETI at Home program back in the 1990s where they would take from the radio telescopes bits and segments of the data that they received because they couldn't crunch it all themselves and 
upload it to the internet for people to download piecemeal automatically and while your while your screensaver kicked in when you walked away from your desk it would crunch through the numbers looking for evidence i always thought that that would be a great premise for a movie or a novel imagine you sitting at home one day and this distributed computing is going on for with SETI data on your on your machine and then uh, you look up and oh my god you've discovered vulcan or Tatooine or something. This is the strangest thing about the whole situation with him, with Stephen Hawking specifically, is that it wasn't that long ago he came out to say that if there was intelligent life out there, we should probably not contact it because there's a good chance that if it's capable of recognizing us, it has a much greater and advanced civilization than we do, and it'll probably run roughshod over us the way we run roughshod over the lesser animals on this planet. Yeah, he's had a complete change of heart. He says, uh, we're human, we're alive, we must know. By the time the aliens pick up our message and visit and you'll be long gone. They'll be using two of the world's most powerful telescopes. Uh, in West Virginia, there's one called the Green Bank Telescope. And in New South Wales, Australia, where there isn't the lights to be concerned about, and of course the radio waves, you've got the Parks Telescope. You don't, need, you don't have to worry about light. Right, because it's all radio-based. And what, that's, that's called a long, uh, I think it's called a long-based array telescope, a very large array telescope. Because basically you have one on one side of the planet and another on the other side of the planet. And if you look at that uh, in terms of galactic distances, you basically have a radio telescope that's the size of the Earth. Yuri Milner is a billionaire out of the United States and the founder of uh, the initiative Breakthrough Initiatives. And uh, he says the current technology gives us a real chance to answer one of humanity's biggest questions. Are we alone. Now, I, I thought anyone who got high and watched Cosmos in the 1970s knew damn well that there's no way we are not alone considering the sheer magnitude of the numbers and the vast distances we could traverse over space to find other planets that sustain life. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. God, there's got to be something out there. If you think that we're alone, that's a huge conceit. There's an interesting um, new theory on the Big Bang in and to itself. There are black holes that are so old that science figures that because it takes something in the neighborhood of 100 million years for a black hole to form, that these black holes that are 13 and a half billion years old are almost as old as the universe itself and therefore must have been created in a previous Big Bang as the universe expanded and then contracted and then expanded yet again. Okay, that's another theory I was, uh, I didn't know about that one. I got one more. Okay. And it has to do with a four-dimensional star collapsing. Uh, don't ask me what a four-dimensional star is. It's way beyond our pay grade. Uh, collapsing and then there could be a bubble on its surface as it collapses and that bubble becomes a new universe. And that's where we came from. 
Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. Okay, so I'm a little confused here. Is Pluto a planet again? Not yet, but people have launched all kinds of discussions as to whether or not it should be allowed back into the club. You found that um, the Queen guitarist Brian May and the New Horizons mission itself have come together somehow. Yeah, Brian May is an astrophysicist. He uh, has a PhD in, in, in this field. He started... Uh, his studies back in the uh, late six, late sixties, early seventies, but then Queen got in the way and he got kind of diverted. But then, <laughs> Dad, I'm going to drop out of being an astrophysicist so I can be a guitarist. And now he's not only a celebrity rock star, he's a celebrity ast- astrophysicist. And he was invited by NASA to come and check out uh, the New Horizons mission control. And one of the people that he ended up talking to was a guy named Alan Stern. Now, I actually, I mean, you may have seen coverage about the New Horizons probe, and you may have seen um, Alan Stern on TV, or you may have read about his comments and all the rest of it. It turns out that I had a fight with him. You did. I did. You know how there are these 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 companies that say that they will name a star after you and then, then take right. fifty bucks and yeah. say that that star is is named after you know your honey or your sweetie or your daughter or your son or whatever it is. Like anybody's got authority on this matter. Well, that's right. The only people that really have authority on that is the International Astronomical Union, and then there are other things that. Um, uh, in the universe that uh, can also be named after after people. There are craters on the moon, there are asteroids, there are comets, there are, there's all kinds of rules for these things. And at one point, uh, there was uh, this one organization said that they would name something after you, and I can't remember what it was. It was a crater, it was an astronomical feature, something like that, for an X, for X dollars, whatever it was. And I wrote back in, in this, and I don't know how this figured into music, but it did. And I wrote something... No, no, this is the domain of the International Astronomical Union. This is a scam. And who writes back on my website but Alan Stern saying that, no, no, you've got it wrong. Under these circumstances, it's the International Astronomical Union. But what we are proposing, and because we're a nonprofit and because we're into space and science uh, education, it's totally cool and we can make it happen. So that, and I figure, okay, this guy, he's running a mission to Pluto. Uh, I'm going to defer to him. <laughs> yes. When in doubt, defer to the bigger brain. Yes. Which is what exactly the director of The Martian apparently did. Have you read the book? I haven't read the book, but I do figure I'll probably see the Matt Damon version of the film. The book is actually quite good. A guy wrote it piecemeal on his blog. Andy Weir, right? He got a lot of people reading it, and they said, you know what? You should actually bundle this together and, and make it an, into a novel. So he did, and... Uh, self-published it, and then it took off. Um, uh, a proper publishing house came along and snapped it up. And and now, I think this is like 18 months later, and now suddenly Matt Damon is starring in, in the movie based on the book. And and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing this because the book is, has got some very hard engineering and very hard science in it. And I like that kind of science fiction. They adapted that for the silver screen as well, to the point where uh, some people had been complaining that the movie's all about growing potatoes. Well, it is because this is a guy that was marooned on Mars when a mission went very wrong and he had to extend his supplies beyond what the supplies would have provided him. So he had to create a greenhouse on Mars and, you know, um, uh, grow his own food, really. Chemists were apparently pointing out problems in the early drafts, so they managed to correct it before it made it on onto the big screen itself. This looks like a lot of fun and I've got a lot of time for the Matt Damon. 
Yeah, I, I like Matt Damon. He uh, he's never really bugged me in any of his movies. I, I think he's and I like his sense of humor. Unlike Ben Affleck, his his partner, but his boyfriend. But I I really like uh, what Matt does. And he'll make a good astronaut. He'll make a really good stranded astronaut. At around 4.30 a.m., our satellites detected a storm approaching the Ares 3 mission site on Mars. The storm had escalated to severe, and we had no choice but to abort the mission. But during the evacuation, astronaut Mark Watney was killed. I'm entering this log for the record. This is Mark Watney. And I'm still alive. Obviously. Marshall Amplifiers is getting into the smartphone business. Yeah, like we need another smartphone, but... (sighs) Well, clearly they recognize that not everybody needs yet another smartphone and therefore they realized they needed to do something unique. Yeah. So this is, um, this is kind of cool. It's got two headphone jacks so you can share your music. And I didn't quite understand on geeksandbeats.com what Patrick Charles had written, but basically the the gist of it is, is that it's capable of running an app called Loopstack for recording. This is an Android device. Man, look at the construction of this thing. I like that volume knob. Does it go up to 11? I don't know. I hope it does. <laughs> One loud. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Oh, it looks like you can plug your guitar into it. That seems to be the idea. If you're going to come out with an Android smartphone, everybody's got an Android smartphone these days, it seems. Why not make it unique? And so while it doesn't have the cutting edge technology that we've all come to salivate after, as Charles writes, it does have something else. It is cool with some retro styling. I like the back of it. It looks like a Marshall amp. It does with that textured uh, leather grain. And all of this as we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the MP3. So the Fraunhofer Institute. Institute, which had invested millions of dollars into the development of Motion Pictures Experts Group Layer 3, was about to pull all the funding and was about to um, dissemble the team and basically move on because it was a dead format with a dead end. There were no commercial customers for it, and it showed no commercial potential. Then what happened? They presented it to a guy who was in charge of, who ended up being in charge of broadcasting NHL hockey games. And he used the technology to create a box called a Zephyr box. And these Zephyr boxes were proved to be very, very powerful and and, and very successful, transmitting the play-by-play of the hockey games back from the arena to the radio stations. And because it was so successful, he ended up licensing this to the entire NHL. And, And why hockey? Well, because when they were developing the MP3, they found out that there were certain real world sounds that they had a very hard time compressing. And one of those things was a hockey game with the, the scraping of the blades on the ice, with the, you know, the, 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 the uh, noise of the crowd, with the puck booming off the boards and all that sort of stuff. That proved to be very, very difficult to compress for a number of very good psychoacoustic and um, physical reasons. Uh, MP2 didn't do a very good job of that. MP3, because they studied the sounds of hockey, did very well at it. As a result, NHL hired the MP3 people, licensed their technology. It overcame MP2s as a result of this, and that's why we have MP3s today. The NHL and hockey did it. 
London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We making any money? Well, we're pulling in 65 bucks. Which is better than nothing. It's a bit low. And we have a new co-producer on the big show this week. Oh, fantastic. Who are we welcoming? Michael Yurkovich has uh, opened his wallet and pledged the $25, which gets him not only the title of the co-producer, he can put it on his resume, add it to his LinkedIn profile. We will vouch for him. And he gets the full high-resolution artwork of this week's show, which he can print off, frame, and hang in his parents' basement. Which, uh... Will look very good there. Yes, some people have done it. Have people ever sent us? Have people ever sent us pictures of their framed artwork in their basement? They have. Oh, we'll, we'll put it on the Geeks and Beats website now. Okay. Rob Frimmer, Aaron Barlev is also a member of the world's worst intern program. Brennan Tan, Craig Glassford as well. And this is the strangest thing about the the Patreon system that we're using here, where you join the world's worst intern program by pledging at least one dollar per episode, and you can set a lifetime limit so that we don't you know rack up your credit card for the rest of your life. We have one intern who has pledged. One penny per episode (laughs) with a lifetime limit of $1,400. Really? Yes. Have you done the math? We have to put out an awful lot of episodes to meet his lifetime limit, my friend. So, Wesley Sadgrove, thank you, I think. Could somebody please do the math? We work in media. We can't do math. (laughs) Exactly. How many months of episodes does that take? So, point... Or one cent. One cent. So we get a dollar for every 100 episodes. And he pledged $1,400. Okay. So that means we can make a grand... Oh, Jesus. Yeah. We're, we're going to be here till the end of time. As a matter yeah. of fact, this episode will be 100 light years away <laughs> from Earth before you could actually pick that up on lightyear.fm. Ah, yeah. Okay. And we'll be dead and gone like Stephen Hawking too. <laughs> exactly. So we would appreciate your supports. If you can uh, keep the show going, uh, all the money gets plowed back into the show as it is. And uh, just go to geeksandbeats.com, click the support the show link. And whether it be a dollar, whether it be $5, $10, what have you, and down the road when we uh, give away or raffle off products uh, from our fabulous uh, supporters, we can in fact add you to the list of potential people who could win it. I am hopeful that we'll um, get some really good stuff shortly. Mm, excellent. Geeks and Beats updates on our report last week on Star Wars versus Star Trek. This is the Nick Winter Show, and I do the entertaining. Thank you. Let's go out with something really hot for these folks. A big hit out of 77. Ah, Star Wars. <laughs> Nothing but Star Wars. Give me the Star Wars. Don't let them you actually came over to my side of the equation. I came over to your side of the equation as an adult. I still, my, my, my love is still with Star Wars, but to your point, Star Trek was more uh, intellectual. It addressed issues that Star Wars didn't. My point was is that Star Wars being a film didn't have the opportunity on a week-by-week basis to be able to delve into a lot of the social issues that Star Trek managed to do. But Entertainment Weekly has dissected that uh, behind-the-scenes video that we were talking about last 
last week, and they've got four possible theories. And the biggest one is the scene in the original trailer teaser that was released. A woman, all we see is her hand, Mm -hmm. reaches up and hands a lightsaber to what appears to be the hand of a young, like a child, a young girl. And we don't know who that woman is. And then in the the behind-the-scenes, Entertainment Weekly points out that you can clearly see... Carrie Fisher wearing the same ring. Ooh. Energy and action. You have to pause, take a breath, slow down, and really not freak out. in the same room as all these legends and with all these new people who I'm sure are going to be legends themselves. So it looks like Princess Leia is handing a lightsaber to a child, most likely the daughter that she had with Han Solo. Oh. Which brings us full circle back to the cutting room floor footage from the original Star Wars film that clearly identifies Han Solo as either having a girlfriend or at least a girl on the side. All right. So if, in fact, Leia marries Han Solo, does she know that he's already married? Maybe he's Mormon. Maybe the rules don't apply. Listen. In a galaxy far, far yeah, away. Well, there's there's a good point. So there are three other theories of which we will not destroy the illusion for you. Okay, I'm just looking at one of them here. I, the, the the Black Stormtrooper is, is interesting. Um, people have been speculating on this ever since that popped up online. Yeah, the idea that, you know, there are no black stormtroopers. Maybe there are black stormtroopers. People talked about. Well, how do you know? I mean, they've always they, they, they've they've always had their helmets on. Yes, but we also know that the helmets come off. They're not robots. And we also know that they this is not a, a clone war scenario. So therefore, it's either a black stormtrooper or a guy who's black who has a stormtrooper uniform, much like the way Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, et al. managed to steal them and wear them themselves. That's true. Okay, so we don't know where he came from, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. All right, and hang on. I'm just going to look at one other here. Uh-oh, see? You know, you're going to blow okay, it for fine. people. Uh, see, and, and you're, a, you're a Star Trek guy. You're not going to even remember any of this anyway. Okay, now when we get into theories number three and four... This is this is beyond my level of knowledge. So theory three is titled "If the Jacket Fits." Uh, Finn is no longer wearing the white armor. Finn being the the black stormtrooper you're talking about, and because it's not exactly desert wear and he looks comfortable, the question is: is why is he running like hell from a Tie Fighter? Mm. And in the behind the scenes footage, we see a similar outfit, but it's worn by someone else. So the question is: what gives? How did Finn end up with this artifact? How did he end up wearing somebody else's clothes? And here's the problem with all of this, is it's all conjecture until the 18th of December. That's true. By the way, remember I was telling you that I got a a lightsaber for my nine-year-old daughter? (laughs) Yes. Uh, And I got one for myself that lights up as well? Yes. She is kicking my (laughs) I'm at the point now where I've got to be genuinely worried about her taking out an eye. At any point, have you looked at your daughter and said, Olivia, I am your father? Is it 
<laughs> no, because this is the thing is I can't be her father in this scenario. I have to be her her Jedi master who's training her. Oh, I see. Okay. Because if I was her father, that would make me Darth Vader, and I've got to be the good guy here. Right. We don't want to, you know, imprint that on the child. Yeah. And the funny thing, too, is that as much as she's happy to talk Star Wars with me, the moment mom makes a Star Wars reference, she just rolls her eyes and goes, <laughs> Mom, don't even bother. Because Mom doesn't get it, right? Mom doesn't get it. It's, it's, it's a daddy-daughter thing, and it's hilarious. I'm loving every minute of it. Back to these theories. What's interesting is... Um, yes? We have J.J. Abrams here, but we, you know, the guy behind Lost. So you, you can imagine him piecing together something... You know, maybe there are some plot points hiding in plain sight with these things if you bring them all together, like um, C-3PO's red arm. Right. You know, I don't know what that means, but, you know. What it means is that there were other androids of that style, and but the markings and their colors were red, and those were the bad guys. So the question is, is has C-3PO been commandeered by the bad guys, and then with a, a damaged or missing arm, had it replaced by the bad guys, or is C-3PO undercover? Wait, wait, wait. Is, 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 is that true about the different C-3PO's? Yeah. Yeah, there are multiple colors for, for uh, those what, units. What, what, what movie was that in? Uh, well, in uh, The Empire Strikes Back, when they're on uh, the Bespin Cloud City, he meets up with one that's white. I don't even remember. Yeah. Well, of course you don't remember. You're too busy getting stoned and trying to figure out which <laughs> star the Enterprise was going to come zooming out towards you in, in the show open. Yeah, we were, we were uh, theorizing on warp bubbles. <laughs> yes. That's, that's what you were doing, sitting yeah. in your basement in the <laughs> 70s. Yeah, maybe. Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. If you're like me, and, and I know I am, you get eaten alive by mosquitoes. See, I don't. I get a couple of bites, but you put my wife out in any any circumstances in the summertime. I, I, she's a nice sweet meat, and the the mosquitoes flock to her, and she looks like a Rice Krispie cake. There seems to be an understanding now as to why that might be. Well, she has talked about her. Uh, she, her she runs a little hotter than than most people, <laughs> in, in more ways than one. In more ways than one, um, she may give off more carbon dioxide. There is an element of truth to that. Yeah, because that attracts uh, mosquitoes. I don't because I guess I don't breathe. Um, but that's the that's as far as we got. Why would you've got something? Uh, according to I. Love Science, uh, otherwise known as IFLScience.com, previous observations have shown that uh, mosquitoes have a preference for larger people who produce more CO2, beer drinkers, and pregnant women. However, the authors of a new study have claimed to find the ultimate answer, and it is scent-based. The skin odor. It has everything to do with the way your body interacts with the world around it and gives off a stink. And... On top of that, it's not just that they're attracted to a certain scent that comes off your skin. Certain types of mosquitoes are more attracted to certain body parts specifically. Ankles, got to be ankles. Ankles and knees are one, and hands are another. You know what? That's a good point, because when I get mosquito bites, I get them either on my ankles or my hands. 100 trillion microbes 
tend to wander across our bodies every day and they produce uh, many of the vitamins and chemicals in our blood and they contribute to our positive health not not just negative as well and they're also responsible for why we stink and so the parts of our body that stink the most attract them the most hmm but because some people's hormonal systems are wired up slightly different than others, some give off a greater stink than others. Therefore, the mosquitoes are more inclined to go to one, not the other. And they performed an unusual experiment by started by making the participants eat cheese. Oh, OK. Yes. Um, my wife likes cheese. <laughs> well. There you go. So now all you, all you need to do when it's a nice hot summer night and the skitters are out, just give your wife a nice plate of uh, camembert, send her out first, and then you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, then I'll have the backyard to myself after about 20 minutes. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I wish you hadn't used the word stink so many times um, <laughs> because I've actually already sent the link off to her. So then it just segues perfectly into our next topic. Oh, yeah. The uh, best songs to have sex to. Let's get it on. thought we had already had this conversation. Well, you know, it, it, it happens every once in a while. Uh, somebody, you know, has a survey or a contest or whatever, and it's always the same thing. You know, what songs are the best to enjoy while boinking? And uh, this one comes from a TV documentary that's in production called Songs to Have Sex To. And uh, they've assembled the top 10. Would you like to hear them? Okay. I think. Okay, we're going we're gonna to start at number 10 and work our way up. We have Gloria from Patti Smith. I would have never really considered that much of a sex song, but they've got it at number, number 10. This is a song that opens with the phrase, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Yeah, nothing kills the mood quite like a crucifixion. Exactly. Then we move up to the Isley Brothers, a band that's been around, uh, oh God, forever. This one makes sense. Yeah, Between the Sheets from 1983. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that one. Number eight makes sense too. Yeah, Sexual Healing, Marvin Gaye, 1982. Marvin Gaye actually has two songs on this on this, uh, on this, this list. See if you can guess the, uh, the one that's coming up. Oh, come on. I know exactly which one it's got to okay, be. Wait, wait, hang on. Don't get ahead of yourself. Sorry. Right. Uh, number seven, Silly Games from Janet Kay, which uh, I, I have to confess, I didn't know. Number six, a no-brainer, Love to Love You Baby by Donna Summer from 1975. You have to go with the original 12-inch disco version, which has uh, maximum moaning in it. That's that's a really uh, sexy. <laughs> the 12-inch disco version. Oh, Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very good. Thanks for that. Uh, Moments in Love from The Art of Noise in 1985. That's just a... Uh, you, know what, you know what? I wouldn't disagree, but you'd have to be a certain type of... Lover? Lover of a certain age mm -hmm. to, to put moments of love on it. And I would have to say as well, maybe, maybe this is my generation kind of thing. Because moments in love would work. Frankie goes to Hollywood. Relax. <laughs> I know. One time, one time, one time. Maybe if it's a bathhouse. Or are you picking up the pace? Or... I would say maybe if it's a bathhouse. Listen to the words. Uh, number three, that's our second Marvin Gaye song with Let's Get It On from 1973. Yep. The French band Air with Sexy Boy from 1998. <laughs> 
so you could uh, that would be a, a, a pansexual one there. Okay. And uh, number one, uh, Jatem, Jane Birkin and Saint, uh, Serge Gainsborough from 1968. Never heard it. Oh, yeah. You, if you put it on, I mean, this was, uh, you know, this breathy, sexy sort of song that caused all kinds of scandal back in, in the... Um, in the 60s. Oh, the French. <laughs> All they think about is the sex. The in, the out. <laughs> Listen to this. Jane Birkin was 22 when she recorded in 1969 Je t'aime and its French lyrics. Uh, she, she admits that the husky breathing was behind the success, so much so that she says that she, many of her fans believed that she and Gainsborough were actually making love during the recording. Oh, I, I, rem, I remember that story. It's kind of like the Donald Sutherland, Julie Christie story. Uh, what was the movie they were in? Um, anyway, same, same kind of thing. They were actually doing it, but no. The the the, uh, the Mail Online, otherwise known as the Daily Fail, uh, says that sensual songs can trick the brain into finding people more attractive. Mm, like beer. Yes, beer goggles, song goggles. I have to uh, point out something. I was at uh, Reggae Sumfest in Jamaica over the weekend. Yes. And I was at uh, Dance Hall Night on Thursday night, and the lady that closed the evening, well, it wasn't so much the evening, it was 5.58 a.m. before the headliner went on. Wow. Uh, her name is uh, Lady Saw. And that's S-A-W, Lady Saw, two words. Go and Google the video for a track called Heels On. Okay? All right. Come and meet me at my front door. Tonight, tonight. Let me take you on a love tour. Tonight, tonight. Let us tear up the stand floor. Tonight, tonight. I want to give it to you, Arthur, tonight, tonight. Let me love you with my heels on, yeah. It will get any guy sweaty. I mean, you just listen to the lyrics. Lady saw and heels on. Trust me on this one. I'm sorry, what was that crazy noise in the background there? Did your wife finally get the email about the mosquitoes? Is no, I believe that was her making a cocktail. Oh, well... If, if you hear Marvin Gaye come on, you know where things are going next. Uh, or Lady Saw, trust me. Just so long as she's not putting One Direction on. You don't know you're beautiful. If only you saw what I can see. You'll understand why I want you so desperately. Right now I'm looking at you and I can't believe you told me. Oh, oh. You don't know you're beautiful. Oh, oh. That's what makes you beautiful. No. This is funny. Um, okay. Taylor Swift used to go out with Harry Styles of One Direction. I'll have to trust you on this. Trust me. The National Enquirer reported that after they broke up, mm -hmm. it was over Harry's insistence that he not get circumcised. Apparently, Taylor wanted him to get snipped. He refused. His foreskin became the wedge in their relationship, so they broke up. She wrote a whole bunch of songs about it, you know, about breaking up, and uh, went on to make a bazillion dollars, and then so did he by keeping his foreskin. I, I know the procedure can be performed 
on anyone at any age. That's right. But wouldn't you say she's about 20 years too late to make that demand? And then on top of that, what kind of girlfriend are you when you make a demand like that? This is the National Enquirer. We have to keep that in mind. Oh, okay. So maybe it didn't actually go down that way is what you're saying. Maybe it didn't happen like that. But listen, the National Enquirer was very accurate when it came to the OJ case. So they do have some journalistic chops here. Oh, sorry. shouldn't say chops. You know what? Everybody quotes something that happened right for the National Enquirer 25 years ago as evidence that they know what they're talking about. Yeah, okay, fine. So anyway, there was a One Direction show in um, Vancouver recently, and um, the Canadian... Let me see if I can find the name of the... The Canadian Foreskin Awareness Project staged a rally outside of BC Place saying, you know, way to go, Harry. Way to hang on to that foreskin. Uh, now, if you abbreviate the Canadian Foreskin Awareness oh. uh, Project, you come up with CANFAP. Uh, the the interesting thing is that uh, they also plan to pick a Taylor Swift concert that's coming up. If you're a supporter of this organization, do you get 10% off your ticket price? Uh, it was, hey. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.